0: Hello, welcome to the podcast, Owen Jones here. Uh, today, Jack Monroe, they are an all-round grey egg, anti-poverty activist, a fighter against the horrifying scourge of food poverty, not least during the pandemic, uh, someone who, who, who has made a, a really big impact. Um, we talk about a lot of stuff, uh, including struggling back, fighting back against injustice, which they so effectively do. To help us expand, please do support us if you can on Patreon.com/slash OwenJones84 as we expand our team and do more, and more work. Or the support function, little one-off, if you want, in the description. If you give us five stars in iTunes, uh, you're the best person in the world, and I will, I will stand by that, uh, and it will help other people listen. Uh, with all of that, please listen to me and Jack. I am exceptionally lucky to have the one, the only, Jack Monroe with the world's most excellent jumper, which, if you're listening to this on the podcast, is – you describe it, Jack, I'll let you describe your own jumper –
1: (laughs) <laughs> it's it's actually a replica of um princess diana's famous sheep jumper that she wore to the polo in 1979 now i'm, I'm not a natural royalist but as a child i was slightly obsessed with princess diana because my mum used to go and visit an elderly lady from church called gladys and i would sit in her porch um reading her like society magazines at the age of like eight and um and i, I was very enamored with uh with princess Di, and i loved that jumper and um you can get like replica versions of it and uh someone got it for me for christmas this year and it uh, was literally over the moon so it's a red jumper with um with like loads of white sheep across it with one little black sheep then where the black sheep sits tends to depend what under supporting garments i'm wearing at the time sometimes it's high <laughs> on the hill and sometimes it's like quite low down um <laughs> and uh yeah so Red jumper, covered in white sheep. One little black sheep in the corner. It's got sheep on the back as well. It is a really happy-making jumper. This so I actually um, I've yeah, right. I been I it for quite... about twenty-five years.
0: I mean, I was quite cheerful before I came on, but I saw you got more cheerful, and then I saw your jumper out even more cheerful. Also, <laughs> not only an excellent jumper, but I'm not a monarchist either. But Princess Diana, absolutely fine, legit to uh, be a fan of hers.
1: Yeah. Yeah, she's 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 the legit one to like, isn't she? So it's like, yeah, okay, cool. So yeah, I'm just, I'm totally over the moon with this with this glorious, glorious, very happy making jumper. And also, I thought it makes a change from like denim shirt, white t-shirt, black jeans. I thought you know i will just channel a hero and see how it goes.
0: I've just put a jumper, a, a hoodie on to bring out my my mardy teenager look. Jack, how is lockdown going? Tell me about lockdown. You lockdown. <laughs>
1: Uh, I mean, lockdown is going, isn't it? And going, and going, and going. (laughs) Um, I mean, at the start of lockdown, a year ago now, I lost all of my work in like a 48-hour period. I literally lost a year's worth of work in a 48-hour period. Just emails coming in going, this talk has been cancelled, this festival has been cancelled, this has been cancelled, that's been cancelled, we're no longer doing this conference. And um, though people primarily know me as a writer, there's not a lot of money in that. So I primarily make my income through basically trumping up and down the country shouting about inequality to assembled groups of professionals who are in a position to do something about it. And that all went. And uh, a little panic and um, famously quite panicky about money. Um, and I started sort of thinking about what else I could do. I started selling my photography and started doing other like quite labour intensive st- stuff to try to generate like bits of income. And um, Then I got offered a BBC TV show (laughs) to teach people how to cook in lockdown um, with uh, the lovely Matt Tebert. That was a baptism of fire. Um, Very, very long hours, very big responsibility, very, very great fun. Um, And uh, yeah, I came out the back of that um, like like I'd been on, (laughs) I don't know, like I'd been on the world's most terrifying roller coaster. Um, It was brilliant. It was also quite knackering. Um, So I came out of that and was like, right, don't want to do telly or anything for a while because I have done (laughs) I have done my quota for now. Um, And uh, yeah, just sort of hung out at home with the boy. And now we're doing some homeschooly stuff and I'm sort of working my hours around the morning assembly and the afternoon yoga and, you know, his yoga, not my yoga. and uh, yeah, we're sort of making it. We're making it work. And you know, I've, I'm lucky that I've landed a few good jobs in this in this time period, and I'm not quite so stressed anymore about paying the bills. Or we're always perpetually going to be stressed about paying the bills because that's just who I am. And um, yeah, it's it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's not it's not the greatest, but you know, we we got Corona in this house, and uh, and it was awful. And um, and I'm still slightly knackered and coming out the other side of recovery from it, but you know, under the like umbrella of experiences that people are having in this lockdown um I think i'm I think I'm doing all right, I can't complain really, even though I am perpetually always on Twitter, but I can't really complain
0: it's very complaining is one of the engines of social progress, I would say I mean, Jack, there were so many things you are that uh, <laughs> like there's a list but One of the things, I mean, you're a chef extraordinaire for a start, and you're a a very, very effective campaigner. Food poverty, now this is something which you've really just driven on the agenda over and over again. Tell me, tell for people who don't know, how was it that that became such a burning passion for you?
1: Um, Well, I lived it myself. Um, For people who don't know my um, backstory, I was um, working in the control room at Essex Fire and Rescue Service and then i had a baby and i went back to work after maternity leave and found that my childcare arrangements i'd made for working um like an 8 day rolling shift pattern were not as resilient as i thought they were <laughs> different things happened like my son's nursery closed down the nearest one to us so the near, next nearest one was almost impossible to get him to within the time window that i needed to get to work um people who had um, sort of collaborated with me to look after him on night shifts um, one of them fell quite gravely ill so couldn't pick up like their sort of share of the rotor, and, and things just started really going wrong um, so I ended up being signed off sick with stress by my doctor went with a headache came out with beta blockers <laughs> um, sleeping pills and a very strict you do not go back to work for at least four weeks um, and ended up resigning to look for something else um and that something else didn't materialize for quite a long time so i was deemed to have made myself unemployed and unemployable by choosing to have a baby by the dwp and as a result of that didn't get um benefits for a, a good few weeks I ended up writing to my mp in desperation because i'd been served a section 21 eviction notice on my flat and i was being told that I needed to look for somewhere else to live, but I didn't have an income, and I was like building up debts of bank charges and unpaid bills and unpaid rent, and no one wanted to take me on anyway, even if I'd been in a position to move. Um, and I ended up basically at the door of a food bank with no money um, to feed myself and my son, and cold and miserable, and just in, a, in an absolutely desperate and destitute situation. Um, People ask me quite a lot. Oh, well, why, why didn't your parents help out? Why didn't friends help out? And that that question only ever comes from people who have no experience of poverty, because with the cold, cold (laughs) hands of poverty come a, a great deal of shame and isolation. I basically tucked myself away and didn't tell anyone how bad things were because firstly um i grew up in a household where both my parents were foster carers and as a result of that from being a very young child my childhood experience was that children would turn up at our house in the middle of the night with a plastic bag of belongings and they would stay with us sometimes for a few days sometimes for over a decade but i had this inbuilt fear because i'd experienced it happening over a hundred times in my childhood that my child would be taken away from me if people knew that we were living in cold, damp, dark, the fridge was unplugged, his shoes were too small, his joggers were riding up his legs, you know, it was, I, I was I was scared that if I admitted to anyone how bad things were, um, the social would get involved and that is, uh, that is a fear that is not unique to me and is not you know, it's, it still happens today. I, I still hear from parents who say, well, I haven't asked anyone for help because I don't want, I don't want people to know how bad things are. So I didn't say anything, got my head down, put my best coat on to go to the food bank. Um, my best friend at the time was also um, referred to the same food bank. So we would meet up in the town centre with our buggies and we would walk down and we would like, you know, just acting like two friends who were going for a chat or, you know, going for a walk. And we'd get the food bank bag, we'd stuff it in the bottom of the buggy, and we'd sort of cover it with like a baby fleece blanket or something, so people couldn't see it. And we'd, we'd carry on, you know, keep calm and carry on, and stiff up a lip, and all of that nonsense is um, it's a very real thing. So I started to write about my experiences, and um, with that came a wave of what I now call poverty deniers and people who refuse to believe that hunger and poverty in Britain exists even though we're faced with ever more stark figures and stories and realities for every day um but also came quite a quite a big online community of support of people reaching out and saying I've been where you are or it doesn't you know it doesn't it doesn't have to end this way or you know just hang in and um and so I'm in a better situation now, you know, not tremendously, I'm, you know, as you can see, I've got a nice house, got a nice jumper, but um, I rent this house and I'm, you know, and I'm not quite out of the woods yet, but I am, you know, I am no longer dirt poor, like <laughs> living out of food banks, but I refuse to leave behind the people who still are. And I get a bit of criticism uh, sometimes for still speaking about poverty and still writing cheap recipes from detractors online who are like, "Well, why are you still pretending to be poor when you've got nice furniture?" <laughs> be- I'm not pretending to be poor. I'm continuing to advocate for people who are because what kind of an arsehole would I be if I just was like, "Oh, well, I've got a book deal now and a, you know a couple of nice rugs and a laptop." I'll, um, uh, pull pull this nice ladder up behind me and trot off into the sunset you've got i can't just write cheap recipes without also you know writing about the reasons why people in the fifth or sixth richest economy in the world are looking for 20p 30p dinners in the first place like one goes hand in hand with the other for me um and until nobody needs the type of work that i do until i've you know, until food poverty has been resolved in this country to such a degree that nobody's Googling in the middle of the night what to do with a leftover half bag of lentils and half a tomato. Um, I'm going to I'm going to carry on as much as I'd love to go jollying off to the mountains in Cyprus and find my ancestors and run around with goats and write a big hardback coffee table cookbook with beautiful photos and it's not going to happen for a while I don't think.
0: After World War II, I'm not going, I'm not doing a big history thing. I was just, you'll I don't see remember it. Sorry. I know. Yeah. For me, it's a vivid, <laughs> vivid memory. It's just like yesterday. So there was this philosophy that poverty, unemployment and injustice, they were social defects. There was something wrong with the way society was run and therefore you needed a collective solution, the welfare state a national health service. Mm-hmm. Thatcher came along and that philosophy, I'll just read her. I'll read her own words. will put these to you. She said There really is no, this was in the 70s, bear in mind, there really is no primary poverty left in this country. There may be poverty because they don't know how to budget, don't know how to spend their earnings. I'm even doing the Thatcher thumb here. But you are left with the really hard, fundamental character personality defect. I think that eloquently sums up Thatcherism. It's this idea that if poverty exists at all, then it's to do with individual failings. People aren't trying hard enough. They're not budgeting properly. What would you say to that? This whole idea of poverty is to do, that's what Thatcherism tried to teach us. It was to do with not being a go getter and not budgeting money properly. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist. Fitting into their schedule and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. Well, I mean, that is an attitude that is still enormously pervasive today, isn't it? So it's nice to know where it's stemmed from, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I mean, even I mean, eight, nine years ago when I first popped up in the in the press, um, and I only <laughs> I only did it to pay a bill. I was offered some money to do a, a newspaper article about a mum that would have a really crap Christmas. And um I didn't want to do it but I thought oh, it would be tomorrow's chip paper and it all cleared like a gas bill and buy some little Christmas presents for my son and from the moment I first popped up it, 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 the the comments that came thick and fast were that there's no such thing as poverty in this country that you must have done something wrong it's a series of terrible decisions or we shouldn't have to pay for your bastard child etc etc and I was like this is this is a really grim and awful attitude, but it's one that is pervasive and it still continues and it continues in Parliament. It continues in, you know, in the House of Lords. It continues in the in the minds, and in, the, in the vocabulary and the speeches of the people who make the laws and make the rules and cut the budgets that disproportionately impact the people who are living in poverty. And that was one of the reasons I got involved in local politics in the first place was I was single mum on the dole and um, my dad was giving me a lift somewhere. I can can never quite remember exactly where it was, Um, but we were in his car. We drove past a petrol station, and in the local paper, and they're like a board outside the petrol station was the headline: "Druggies, drunks, and single mums are ruining the high street." And I was like, "Dad, stop car! Have you got like fifty p on you?" And he was rooted around in that middle bit of the car when like, you know, people keep their change. And um I ran out, and ran to the petrol station, I got this paper and I, it was a front page of the paper and it was a local Tory councillor called Anna Waite and her um, father ran a restaurant in the high street and a restaurant and ice cream shop and she was bemoaning the fact that single mothers with their buggies would hang around in the high street making it look untidy basically and that we were contributing to the death of the economy and um, it was us and the and people who were... Um, you know unfortunately in the throats of various forms of addiction it's not how she put it um, who were also cluttering up the place and ruining business I was like well it might be something to do with your family's stinking attitude why people don't want to come to your coffee shop but um, I wrote a letter to local paper properly kicking off about um, about what she said and decided to go to council meetings to see like who these people were um, who were making these proclamations about people like me. And also, these were the same people who would shut my son's children's centre, who'd made going back to work more difficult for me, who were having a review about shutting the local library that we hung around in when it was freezing cold because it's free and there's things to look at. And I just wanted to, I wanted to see who they were. And so I went along and um, started to write about it. And that's how I, and I have discovered that, that that attitude is alive and well and, uh, and alive and well through every sort of, you know, every subset of society, every rung up the ladder has got people on it who truly believe that people who are using food banks people who are in poverty in Britain either don't exist or it's all their own fault and I get it it's comfortable for people to think oh well you must have made some terrible decisions that I and my darling children would never make so we will never end up in your position it's a it's a comfortable distancing technique to be like oh I am safe and secure and you are a wrong one but actually coronavirus has demonstrated And should have demonstrated to all of us that actually that security net that people think they have is is very very patchy and that a lot of people have found themselves in situations that they may not have imagined ever sort of coming face to face with i mean food insecurity has touched all of us at some point in the pandemic whether that's running out of pasta in the supermarket or you know or various different you know, things being missing or out of stock or not being able to shop in the same way that we usually would, uh, you know, it's and for that to have sort of crept into almost every household in Britain in the last year, hopefully means that people might have slightly more sympathy and understanding for what it actually means to being food insecure and hungry. Hopefully.
0: I mean, we all know coronavirus is a public health emergency, obviously. But one of the things Mm -hmm. people often don't think about is that poverty is a public health emergency. And before the pandemic came along, the poorer you are, the lower your life expectancy, but also huge amounts of physical and mental health impacts. And we can see the pandemic's like a terrible flare lighting up and reinforcing existing Mm -hmm. injustices because the poorer you are, the more likely you are to die from COVID-19. So what how would you sum up? What is the impact of poverty on health? Not not just mental health, physical health as well.
1: Well, I wrote something uh, recently, actually, for House Magazine, which is the Parliament's like in-house magazine that goes to MPs and staffers, etc. Ab- about exactly this, because I thought I'm um, I've spent the last eight nine years talking about how we need to feed people now. People not having food is you know absolutely drastic it's a ghastly way to run a country it's a horrible thing to do but I thought actually that message doesn't seem to be getting through so I've switched to sort of long-term impact of childhood exposure to poverty um, and I basically wrote about the fact that childhood exposure to poverty deprivation and adversity falls under the umbrella of adverse childhood experiences On a par with domestic abuse childhood sexual assault loss of a parent parental incarceration violence and neglect exposure to adverse childhood experiences increases the risk of trauma later in life so you have less favorable health outcomes it has a negative impact on general well-being increased likelihood of risky or criminal behaviors poor educational or academic outcomes and financial difficulties children who experience food insecurity even short term are more likely to fall ill have a slower recovery rate than average from minor illness and more likely to need hospital admission. And food poverty doesn't exist in a vacuum as it's one of the most fundamental survival instincts of our species is to nourish ourselves. Food is actually one of the last necessities that people choose to cut in a crisis. So if somebody is in food poverty or living in food poverty, they're probably also in hygiene poverty, period poverty, energy poverty. And although it's helpful in some regards to break down different aspects of poverty that touch a person's life at at any given time it's also important to remember that it all just falls under one umbrella which is poverty and and if you're experiencing one of those it's very likely that you're experiencing other things in that in that sort of in that bracket as well which basically adds up to you are having a pretty shit time of it and people need to buckle up and help so if we you know if if we look at the fact that food insecurity is linked to a higher probability of chronic illness later in life and living in damp and unsuitable accommodation is also linked to uh, like higher incidences of respiratory problems and um, lung problems and you know some types of cancers which all it makes sense to invest now in feeding people in keeping the universal credit uplift in raising the amount of benefits and in work benefits and out of work benefits to match a reasonable and healthy living standard rather than be spending literally millions later down the line in nhs care and social care and support and picking up the pieces of the seeds that have been planted all those years before like just just nip it in the bud and give people a chance to thrive and be their whole selves and have have a bloody good start in life because it's it's just i mean on the one hand the the government of consistently cutting care and support for people with disabilities and even in the pandemic people who are disabled and shielding they've just been sort of Tucked away and not heard from, and and their stories go untold and they're sort of like forgotten about in like Victorian era version of just sort of put them out of the way so we don't have to see them, and it's disgusting. But it's like, well, if you don't want to be creating more of these pesky, expensive, disabled people, of which I am one, and well, stop starving them and freezing them in their early years of their lives and then later on it's it's so i mean i'm i'm autistic so i'm quite black and white about things about cause and effect and i'm kind of like i don't know if it's me oversimplifying things but depriving people of basic human needs in their in their formative years leading to a higher likeliness of chronic illness which is you know expensive for the state to support if we're talking in conservative terms, surely if we invest in people's nourishment, nutrition, and early years now, we'll save a fucking fortune later down the line. I mean, if I can't appeal to them on a human level, we'll try to appeal to them on an economic one. So, it's as grim as it is. <laughs> I mean,
0: during the, you've played this pretty heroic role during the COVID crisis. And um, we saw, of course, the campaign, most associated for a long time with Marcus Rashford, uh, the football mm-hmm. player. Uh, and this is obviously on the issue of, of children in this country who live in poverty, and poverty rates are getting worse even before COVID, uh, and having support for them during summer holidays. Um, mm-hmm. And then, well, why don't we just explain what the government did and why, because you caused an online sensation which pulls <laughs> put pressure on the government. What What did the government do, and what does it tell us about their attitude towards children in poverty
1: so originally um children who were in receipt of free school meals were eligible for a 30 pound supermarket voucher that could be spent at uh, most of the major supermarkets Um, now these vouchers were only eligible to be spent on basically food products they were blocked from age restricted products so that's everything from cigarettes alcohol um razors um, a vegetable peeler to peel your vegetables with um like a paring knife chef's knife anything that you needed to be over 16 to buy a can of an energy drink all of that couldn't have on these vouchers they would physically not scan through the checkout they would not go if you had any of those things in your basket and i have spoken to countless supermarket workers who have backed that up and said "Yep, that's it doesn't they, they literally don't work Um, Despite this, a small, um, noisy table of um, Conservative supporters and some MPs um, made lurid claims on Twitter and other social media outlets that parents were abusing these vouchers um, to buy cigarettes and alcohol, and um, I can't remember which MP it was, uh, was it Ben Bradley, who said that they were funding crack dens,
0: um, mm-hmm. as if yeah. your
1: local crack dealer was going to take like a 30 quid Aldi voucher in return for a whatever whatever that would buy you. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm not sure that that's their currency. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert, but, um, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure that that's, um, that's how it works. And um, so very swiftly, those vouchers were taken away because there was a public backlash about them, because rather than believing the supermarket workers and the individuals who were in receipt of the vouchers, um, the general public chose to believe Ben Bradley and, and, and people making ludicrous claims, because it's easier to think that poor people are feckless and awful than it is to think that, you know, they might just want some carrots and some bloody bread. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those vouchers were... Taken away and replaced with a little meal hamper. Um, and the little meal hampers were similar to the ones that were being given out to, you know, those pesky childers, um through the whole of the pandemic. And they, people were sending me pictures of them through the months on Twitter. And I tried to rabble rouse a few times about it, but people just weren't interested. And then a Twitter user called Roadside Mum posted a photo of her food box a couple of weeks ago and it was like two manky bananas a loaf of bread a couple of like sweaty slices of cheese um like a potato and it was it was quite clearly a not suitable for um, multiple lunches for multiple children and b absolutely was nowhere near the value of 20 pounds worth of food So we totted up. Oh, actually, this comes to. She made it five pounds sixty-seven. I made it slightly less, but we'll say around like around a fiver. Where's the other fifteen quid going in this tender? Like, who is pocketing fifteen pounds out of twenty pounds? To give the kids who should be in receipt free school meals this absolutely meager and revolting box of nothing that could be put together to make a meal and why isn't that money going to feeding the children so um she kicked off i joined on to the back of the sort of conga line of fury Um, Marcus Rashford came along and did what he does, which is brilliant. used his platform to really elevate the story and and go straight to the government themselves because they seem to listen to him, which is brilliant. And um, within sort of 24 hours, it had been turned around and the vouchers were being reinstated. Initially, the government doubled down. They were like, no, there's no way we're going to put vouchers back in. And then they, they, I think because they're quite a populist government, if they think that they can score an easy win or look like a hero you know like Boris's Christmas thing or whatever they'll they'll do it they'll be like no 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 there's no way we can possibly do it and they'll wait until everyone's furious and then they'll save the day and you're like you're not really saving the day you're partially resolving the problem that you caused in the first place see also um, police cuts or cuts to health services or cuts to domestic violence you can't just throw like a fraction of what you've already taken away at something and claim that you've made it better because you still made it objectively worse. Um, But anyway, um, the voucher system is now back in place and children who are uh, who qualify for free school meals can get vouchers from their schools and the boxes have been massively improved as well. Um, The main provider who was doing who was doing those food boxes, Chartwells, actually got in touch with me um and were like can we send you what we're thinking of putting in these boxes and um and we had some email exchanges and some quite robust phone calls about it actually um and they took a lot on the chin which i thought was well i mean they, they couldn't not by this point because everyone was furious with them and their shares were going Meow. um And so they now include breakfast and now their lunches are a lot more substantial. But because the spotlight was on Chartwells, they've upped their game and they've done and they've they're including things like gluten free options now and things that they previously said weren't possible. But other food box providers, I'm still seeing boxes going around on Twitter, um, that have still got moldy oranges in or an insufficient amount of food or bizarre combinations of products that you just can't make a meal out of and I, even I can't make a meal out of or I could but it wouldn't be anything that anyone want to eat. Um, so it's like the as ever the ones that had the were highlighted and were properly yelled at and shamed publicly have kind of sorted their act out but everyone else, isn't following suit and it's kind of like look with it's not a case of doing it just because people are angry with you and now know your name it's a case of doing it because you're getting the funding to do it it's the right thing to do and you know profiting from starving children is morally uh, well it's just morally there's, there are no morals there are no words it's just disgusting and how you can boast about shareholder profits in the same breath as your you know those shareholder profits are being funded by literally starving children is um it's obscene. So I quite like it if they all kind of bucked their ideas up and sorted their mailboxes out and sort of you know did the right thing. Also, yeah, I mean, but the role the role you played <laughs> the role you played there
0: was I mean, you were obviously rightly there was a huge amount of love and support for what you did there and you know it was shocking that it came to you having to do what you did and such is the society we live in um just a couple of other things there's a couple of questions people are very excited i was going to speak to you so they wanted me to ask you a couple of questions which i will now mm-hmm. do so john hegarty oh, okay. asks how do we build a broad anti-poverty campaign linking unions and community groups and chris asks do you think we have an appropriate system of justice to support victims of dishonest or defamatory newspaper columnists how do you stop Dishonest lies and uphold standards in journalism.
1: <laughs> I—I'll answer the second one first. Um, I think that we've—I mean, as as we know, I—I I took a newspaper columnist to court for libel um, a few years ago, and I won. Um, so I think the, but I think the justice system is incredibly difficult. I was very lucky to get a pro bono lawyer and a very experienced. Um, pro bono lawyer She's very experienced in newspaper harassment cases. Um, although I, I should add that the columnist at the time hadn't published a libel in a newspaper, she published it on Twitter, but she worked for a newspaper so carried with it the weight and the audience of, of that that carries. Um, but it was a very long and gruelling process and I couldn't really work throughout it because I was just so ground down by the whole thing. And it several times I contemplated sort of pulling out and was told that if I pulled out of the process I was liable for um, my lawyer's legal fees if I didn't see it through, uh, which I didn't have obviously Um, so I had to carry on. So I think you have to be a very robust person, you have to have a very good lawyer who's willing to act pro bono and you have to have the time and the energy to dedicate to it. So it's a system that although that story, people love to tell it, like, I defeated the Wicked Witch. Actually, it, that process defeated me time and time and time again. And the only reason I really carried on with it was because I couldn't afford to pull out of it. So I think it needs to be made easier. I think loss of legal aid is um, makes justice for the, um, not weaker, but the lower income party in in any disputes like that much more difficult. And I think that there's a lot left to be done to ensure that people who are misrepresented and defamed and libeled um, can see justice brought. So although mine was sort of like the landmark case that allegedly changed things, um, actually years down the line I was still on a daily basis and being libeled and defamed on social media and on gossip forums and other outlets and and I think the law needs to be a lot more robust about um, allowing platforms to knowingly publish things that may be libelous or defamatory and and there needs to be a course of action in the changing landscape of malicious commentary um, that helps to support the victims of it and that's something that is quite close to my heart right now because my god it's been quite a year Um, and I don't know what the answer is but I'd quite like I'd quite like people to stop saying it's too difficult to find these people or it's too difficult or the police aren't really up to date with it or ever get up to date with it find these people use the tools that you have at your disposal to you know to put as much effort into the like you know the people who are trying to destroy people's lives and livelihoods but, and sort of sort it out because at the moment it's like the wild west out there and people can pretty mm. much get away with anything so newspaper columnists are possibly a little bit more careful now because of my ruling but anonymous faceless gits on the internet are less so and then um, someone needs to bring that side of things to justice now so that there's a bit of a lesson there as well on the- First one, which is what was it? How do we have a more joined up, yeah? How do, how do we build tackling poverty?
0: How do we build basically alliances to tackle poverty, whether it be unions, community groups, civil society? I guess would be the word. How do we build those effective coalitions? I mean, it's tricky when locked down, but generally,
1: mm-hmm. I think um to go back to um, something that. Um, the wonderful um, late MP Jo Cox said in her maiden parliamentary speech, is that we have more in common than that which divides us. And I think there is a real, there's a real tendency, um, especially in the more well-meaning end of the political spectrum, to let the quest for perfection get in the way of any good that we could do. I um, I'm guilty of it I've done it I've done it countless times um but in order to in order to actually achieve you know in order to achieve radical social change we need to make sure that we unite on the issues that that we commonly believe in and I believe that that is you know a decent welfare state support for the most vulnerable a, a well functioning and well funded NHS um you know safe homes and food and shelter and basic human needs for all a decent living wage we look at the things that unite us and the common causes that if each of us were to write a manifesto pledge what what things would be on pretty much every single one of them and it's the building blocks of a decent safe society and the the fundamental necessities that come with it and so if we work together on those things and stop pointing at each other and saying oh well seven years ago you said this in a newspaper article well well I don't agree with you about that you can still call out difficulties and disagreements mm-hmm. but you, you shouldn't be doing that at the expense of supporting the most vulnerable because I tell you what the 4.1 million children currently living in poverty in Britain don't have the time For us all to iron out all of our bloody disagreements before they can get their next meal on the table.
0: So, just finally, what at the moment gives you hope about what kind of where we're heading after the pandemic?
1: What gives me hope about where we're headed after the pandemic? Well, I think a lot of people have experienced firsthand the impact that food insecurity can have. On their own households and on the households of people close to them or people that they know i think that a lot of people have um come together to see what they can do in their neighborhoods and in their communities in that in this period of time i think people are generally more community-minded than i've than i've personally known them to be over the last few years so i'd like to i'd like to hope that those qualities continue that we don't all get sort of you know goodness fatigue (laughs) at the end of this and like or you know neighborliness fatigue and sort of at the end of this withdraw back into ourselves and go oh god like oh thank god that's over and i have to stop being nice to everyone on the street whatsapp or whatever if we could just continue with the with the sort of the community mindedness the neighborliness the looking out for each other and also the 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 mindfulness about how difficult things are for people and that we potentially could be heading into another recession another round of austerity and to just bear in mind that the difficulties faced during the pandemic and how much more difficult it it will be for a lot of people when it finally starts to wane because when we're left standing in the shadow of coronavirus for a lot of people there'll be a, a a massive sense of relief a sort of a thank god that's over we can go back to whatever normal looks like but for a lot of other people there's going to be real insecurity there's going to be no job to go back to there's going to be mortgage payments or rent payments that have defaulted there's going to be you know uh, food insecurity there's going to be they're going to be on benefits for the first time in their lives or or whatever and just to sort of what I'd like to hope is that people continue to take care of each other in the manner that we've seen over the last year or so and, um, and that we sort of remember our common humanity and continue to look out for each other.
0: Thank you so, so much, Jack. It's been a huge honour. You're an inspiration. Keep doing what you do.
1: Thank you, and it's been a real pleasure to be here as well. So thank you so much.
0: Cheers for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that chat. And if you do want to help us get even bigger and better, then all your support is appreciated. Either in the supporter function in the description or patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones84 where you will have a say over what we do and who we talk to. Um please give us five stars on our iTunes to help get the message across. More people will listen, which is, you know, the plan. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll speak to you soon.